Hi, this is Frank Menzer. Whether you play Moldvay or My Edition or any other basic D&D, tune in next for Save or Die Basic D&D. That was some nice art you put up, the self-portrait, the oh, vector art. Thank you. From this point forward, I'm going to stop asking you or bugging you about doing art for OSR books because clearly you just don't want to. Well, I mean, I kind of – I would like to, but I feel like I don't have the time to devote to taking a contract while I'm still trying to get my degree if you're happy with an all boys club and you know not carrying on the legacy of Darlene, I'm I'm cool with that. I'm your friend. I Ow! I, I got your back. <laughs> guild, guild, guild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hola, everybody! It's Everdie number ninety six, the return of the hot tub time machine. <laughs> Yay! Hey. Yeah, it seems like only yesterday that we did an email show. <laughs> yeah, the hot tub's full of emails, apparently. <laughs> we have such first world problems. Our fans adore us. Poor us. Yeah. Oh, Aww. yeah, this is a problem we can, we can definitely get used to. As usual, with me is DM Liz. Hello, hello. And DM Jim. Greetings, programs. And we're going to talk emails. Emails, emails. And a voicemail, maybe. I forget. Are we going to have a voicemail? I don't think we're having a voicemail. We're today. not a voicemail. Okay. No voicemail, voicemail for you. But before we get to our piles of emails, we're going to talk. What have we been doing in gaming this week? And we'll start with Liz. Oh, God. <laughs> I think I, I hear a good story up. coming. Oh, oh Yeah. I've I've kept myself from talking about it on my Facebook page just so I'd be able to talk about it here and not have everyone listening going, "Oh, I already know all about that." You know. <laughs> but anyway, a save or die exclusive. Okay. Who'd you kill? Um <laughs> Well, <laughs> I love it when you do the Elizabeth Montgomery well. I just got to say that out front. <laughs> okay. In our 2E game, we're still going through the bizarre mashup of the Temple of Elemental Evil, the return to the Temple of Elemental Evil, and the Hackmaster Temple of Existential Evil. We're still doing that. Well, we got to the point, and I believe that this was part of the return module. 
Yeah, when the third edition one. We get to a an iron tower with a big iron door. The door is intelligent. The door is sentient. The door, the door is a jerk. Is a jerk and cleans our clocks. <laughs> we were beaten up by a door. Well, we did slay the yes, door. Yes, we killed the door. And that sentence, just on the face of it, sounds ridiculous. I killed a door. The door um, was throwing lightning bolts, summoning it, monsters, and haunting us. Yes, giving us smack the whole time. Is it, DM Chase, you can't see it, but I'm just bowing to you right oh now. Oh, my God. <laughs> And he reduced the power of the door to make it only 230 hit points. <laughs> yes, we, yeah. got, we got the kinder, gentler door. <laughs> Without a DC of 30, which if I remember what little 3 I know means, you have to do more than 30 points of damage just to do anything at all. And as the door was hold and smashed and falling down it shouted i will have my revenge <laughs> and, and fell on mike's character <laughs> and preston's paladin in sort of a last act of defiance just huge heavy you know three inch thick steel door wham just falls on him you know we wanted to pick the door up and throw it over the bridge into the bottomless chasm just to make sure we never ran into this damn door again. I am half expecting that door to be intact and ready. A to recurring give us, villain. And giving us some more crap as we're trying to leave the tower. I, I am expecting this. This Preston is almost- was going, this is the weirdest boss level. <laughs> <laughs> the only way the story could be better is, was if there was a gazebo involved. That's awesome. I know. <sighs> I mean, talk about embarrassing. You know, bad enough we're fighting a door, but the door is kicking our butts. <laughs> it took all of us together to kill the door, and we're just we sort went- of standing there all bloodied, and some of us are, you know, barely hanging on with three hit points left. It's like, ah! <laughs> Remember Mead's character? Negative eight hit points. Yes. She was... At oh, Death's door. door. Oh, my Mike God. Mike made that comment, too. I guess she's at Death's door. Like, I got oh. an XP penalty. So what do you... He was, he was pleased. What are you guys, like, first, second level characters? No! <laughs> We're eight. No! We're eighth, seventh, eighth, and ninth level characters. And we had just rested up. <laughs> you must have huge rats. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> I mean, although I guess the encounter right behind the door was worth it. There was a pair of dragons tied up there, a black and a blue. Well, obviously kind of, meant to be kind of dragons. They were kind of a cross between, like you crossbred a dragon and a T Rex. Yeah. Oh, because everything's better with T Rexes. Well, yeah. Apparently. <laughs> However, we had a potion of black dragon control. And a potion of blue dragon control. So he basically just made them kill each other. 
And whichever won, the blue one was barely alive, but won. And then that moment, Jonathan threw a fireball in there. And that finished it off. So I suppose that made up for our battering by the door. <laughs> yes. Door practically kills us. Two dragons. No problem. What, was it Preston or, or Tim who was talking about aiming for the... For called shots on the door, aiming for the knockers. The knockers. That was Tim. Uh, I can't uh, breathe. You're killing me. Although, <laughs> Preston, with his paladin, he was really getting into it. It's like, I am Leonorus, door killer! <laughs> like, like, I don't think people are going to find that very impressive. <laughs> but we will, for we know. You guys are going to be taking it out on every other door in the rest of the Oh, dungeon. I know. We're going to oh, have absolutely. a complex now. We're going to murder every door we come to just to defend ourselves. Uh, I ain't going up there and checking for traps. <laughs> Fireball that son of a... <laughs> man, that's a door. <laughs> oh, man. Although, I will admit uh, some some more game knowledge. It's not what we've done over the past couple of weeks, but it's going to be for this coming Sunday. I am going to be running a Holmes Basic D and D game. Yay! Yay. One of us is going to play in the po- in the game we cover on the podcast. Yay! <laughs> yes, Mike will be running, and I will be one of the players. Like woohoo! <laughs> a friend of ours, his significant other, is never played D and D, so we're giving a quote unquote basic game to show him how to play, and. Some of our gaming group may be showing up. We'll see. We invited them. They're they're interested, depending on whether or not they're going to be free on Sunday. You know, they're going to come in, and so we're going to have a game, and hopefully, it'll be a lot of fun. Mike has promised that he will not kill the the new person's character. Not, not, that not, promise not, I, has not been extended to any of the rest of us. No. I promised that the new character would not die unless they did something really stupid. Ah, that's not what you initially that's said. That's what I meant. Well, I'm Remember what you they did to us to... when we all started playing? Like, why am I have to I just want to play. Why do I have to roll up three characters at once? <laughs> <laughs> You'll find out. Yeah, I'm gonna have a pile of <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have a pile of pregens, and already I've got plans for whenever somebody's character is killed, how they can introduce another one mid-game. So, but darn it, we're gonna be able to talk about a classic D and D game. <laughs> so darn everyone, it. stay tuned for episode ninety-seven. <laughs> dun dun. But that leaves it over to you, Jim. What have oh. you been up to? Well, I'm very glad you talked about your gaming experience with genre mashing because I almost broke my brain last night running uh, my system for my players. Okay, keep in mind the campaign is post-apocalyptic version of DCC to start with. The quest the players got sent on was to help a kindly chip scientist who wanted to uh, transfer their minds back through time into bodies in the distant past in the glory days of the ancient ones to steal the formula for cortexin this uh gaseous uh neural uh steroid that uh will grant sentience to non-sentient animals so they all signed uh-huh. up they he's a nice guy they're nice guys they all signed up to have their uh brains beam back through time and they woke up in bunny bodies and at that point i handed out character sheets for bunnies and burrows to everybody Woo-hoo! <laughs> 
Oh, Corbett will be happy to hear that. <laughs> in which the Although, and he thought they couldn't probably break into his lab, so they beamed him back in time to outside his house, which was the circular house from Metamorphosis Alpha, an adventure written by a friend of mine named Craig Brain, uh, called House on the Hill. So that was. Ah. DCC, MCC, Bunnies and Burrows, except I didn't run strict Bunnies and Burrows because I sort of DCC-ified it. So they're like running around in the yard uh, trying to distract a vicious German Shepherd and a gardening ecobot. And it was just all kinds of awesome, and my group rolled with it. And I I even got my old school props from Tim Kask. I was telling him about it this morning, and he's just like, that's the way you do it. Because <laughs> suddenly they don't have opposable thumbs and can only count to three. <laughs> you never saw such great playing in your life. I mean, like they tried to dig under this force field fence, couldn't. The force field kept going down, so then they piled dirt up and built themselves a little bunny ramp to hop over it. They just played excellently, <laughs> and and I was being a bastard to them too because they uh, they couldn't take anything back except what they could remember. So when they <laughs> you set to picture the scene, we're inside the house. There are four little bunnies up on a mental metal bench with protrusions, and they kept asking me, "Is there a keyboard?" And I'm like, "What's a keyboard? You know, you're from a post-apocalyptic hothouse jungle." And I'm like, "Well, we we hit the protrusions, and there four of them are trying to get the formula, while the rest of them are running around keeping the <laughs> household bot occupied, who's tractor beaming them two at a time and chucking them back over the fence." <laughs> and then they finally somebody nat twenty their little artifact roll, and the formula pops up on the screen. And I laid a piece of paper down with a molecular diagram and a chemical formula, and made them put all their pencils and smartphones down and gave them 60 seconds to memorize it and then yanked it back. And I want you to know Rick Hull was able to, from memory, reproduce. It was like that Red Dwarf episode where Rimmer had to go to the alternate universe and come back with the Rexy Dexy Plexy <laughs> formula. And oh, Rick- yeah. To, to save Lister from being really rich and, and successful. And Rick Hull pulled it off. Woohoo! Goal. Excellent. And there were no sentient rabbits in my post-apocalyptic universe until they came back from their time travel shenanigans. And suddenly the kindly chimp scientist was a kindly sentient rabbit scientist. Hmm. Oh, so it wasn't a hoop, though. I'm not saying. (laughs) (laughs) That is for the players to find out. (laughs) Well, I mean, hoops are trademark copyright Wizards Mm -hmm. of the Coast, so it will not be a hoop. Ah. Evil bunny? Yeah. It'll be a, a, a bunny with similar mindsets or something. Hoopy. Hoopy, yes. <laughs> so that's old school, right? I'm like trying to juggle five systems in my head and just hot dog my way through the whole thing with my Oh, players. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if Dr. Suster would approve of my version of Bunnies and Burrows since they were, you know, circumnavigating uh, ID cards, force field fences, <laughs> and ecobots, but... <laughs> It started out very traditionally where they were just trying to get across the long flat. Remember that, Liz, when we played? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Except my long flat had 200-mile-per-hour anti-grav cars whizzing up and down it. <laughs> nah. Like a game of Frogger. <laughs> wow. Well, that sounds cool. And we have Gen Con coming up. So are you going? I'm absolutely going. That's why my brain was so exhausted today. It's just Gen Con prep. Uh, oh, I'm glad one of us is going. <laughs> well, there's a Goodman Games gonna... seminar that uh, I'm responsible for videotaping, uh, some other Goodman stuff that I'm involved in in a very minor way, and a bunch of the DCC guys are conducting their own little mini-con, and Tim coached me to be sure and say this specifically. It's just a social gathering. There's no money changing hands, so Gen Con people don't get mad, but it's called Doug Con. Doug, 
Last year, Doug Kovacs <laughs> started running a game in the Embassy Suites bar after each night after the Gen Con convention closed. And the first night, it was like six of us, and the next night, it was 18 of us. And by Saturday night, it was 60 or 80 people. And this year, they got organized. They're going to actually do it, and I get to be one of the uh, co-judges of that. Ah, cool. Sounds You'll have like to give fun. us a thorough report when you return. Okay. Or at least of whatever you remember. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be. I didn't kill as many players as Doug or Job. Because <laughs> who does really, right? Cool. All right. Well, in that case, before we hit our pile of emails, any interesting things involving classic D anD D we want to mention? Well, I don't know about or the podcast. I was going to say, it's not classic D&D in and of itself, but it does have to do with Save or Die. Um, Fat Dragon Games has partnered with Save or Die to allow us to run a contest for our faithful listeners. Woo! Woohoo, yes. Um, we're wanting to increase our Facebook fan base and reach a goal of 500 members. Um, we're in the 430s right now, I believe. Um, Anyway, Tom Tullis of Fat Dragon has kindly donated 10 of his terrain sets to help us do it. Once we reach 500 fans on our Facebook page, we will randomly draw 10 folks who are fans of the page, private message them, and they can choose the terrain set they want from the Fat Dragon Games sets that are available. Um, Anyway, they... You know, they choose the set, you know, give us their email address, and Fat Dragon will email your terrain set directly to you. So, if you are not already a fan of us on Facebook, please become one. And if you are, we encourage you to share our page and tell all your gamer friends about it. And you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash podcast. Well, Tom, what a sweetheart. He is. He is super cool. And while you're there, if you are not already a fan of Fat Dragon Games, go find them on Facebook. Like them. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. Alrighty. Well, I don't know about uh, UGM, but I just wanted to mention a couple of things I'd found on the net that were kind of cool since the last episode. One was an article that John Peterson wrote called Ambush at Sheridan, Fall- Sheridan Springs. Oh, that was good. Is, yeah, it's just basically a history of what happened with the infamous meeting that we all know about there, where Gary Gygax lost control of TSR in 1985. Um, I like not only you know for the detail he gave, but he keeps his usual objectivity, I think, as much as possible in such a you know, volatile subject as Gygax and TSR. And he's also Um, very clear to say at the end when he's giving his sources that, you know, some of it is, you know, because you were not, you know, nobody was there who, you know, he spoke to about it. Um, You know, some of the stuff is of unavoidably, you know, secondhand. You know, Mm -hmm. from other people. But he's very clear about what parts, you know, of the research come from that. So, yeah. Just like in Playing at the World, everything is cited. So it's very scholarly Mm -hmm. and journalism in the finest sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very, you know, 
party A says A, party B says this, party C says this. There's no judgment, judgmental yeah. overtones. It's like There is no way to know what really happened, but these are what the various people have stated did. You know? mm-hmm. It's really cool, and everybody should read his blog because at the uh, – I can't remember if he said it at the end of Playing at the World or we were talking to him when he was on the podcast, but everybody immediately said, are you going to write a sequel book? And he's always been adamant that he stopped – his historical coverage at what was it eighty one, because the story, yeah, because he wants to write a, a a book he enjoys writing and and reading, and the the happy story mostly stops at eighty one. So <laughs> so on his blog, he's it's, this is almost like the sequel book we all wanted. Well, I hope this means he's doing more research into the as a sequel book. I know he that wasn't really something he wanted to do, but I was really hoping there would be a subsequent history that would cover the 1980s. Um, I'd love to read it. I don't know if he'd love to write it, but hopefully this article means he's at least doing some preliminary research in that direction. Well, it's great stuff to read, even if it's just uh, little blog entries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we'll have the link on the show notes, uh, both directly to the article itself as well as to Playing at the World um, his blog where he mentions that his – I think it was Monday, July 28th, 2014 is when he posted about the the uh, article in question. John is this giant asset to the hobby because it's it's a gift to us that we have like this you know Newsweek magazine level journalist that wants to cover the history of the hobby in a, in a very earnest and uh, super competent way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know even though – and the thing is, I would like to say I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but the point is, I reading, say, Playing at the World, I don't know just how many of his conclusions there are because he's so good at just these are the facts. I'm not going to tell you what I think or what my opinions are, which I think is really good, um, especially in history, any kind of history, especially nowadays, but – I look. I hope he's going to do a playing at the world too, or something. Maybe just calling, calling the book ambush at Sheridan Springs. I don't know. <laughs> okay. And about the only other thing I'd like to mention is Xenopus uh, Archives has put out a list of twenty backgrounds for potential PCs to have in original D and D, and that we're all inspired. By the a lot of it from the art in the OD&D books, and they have stuff like you know the gem cutter, Amazon, so on and so forth. And if you're going to have to have a shutter proficiencies or skill system, he does his very very basic. You know, you get like plus four on one action that you might do maybe once in a game or something. And anyway. We'll put the link up for it. Take a look. Maybe you'd, something you'd like to import. Maybe not. But I thought it was cool. I appreciate you pointing uh, it out to me. I didn't know he'd put anything new up. Yeah, yeah. I always like to, to pimp Xenopus Archives because, you know, Liz likes Holmes. So That's right. That. All righty then. Well, without further ado, unless someone has anything else, let's get to emails. Get down, get down. Save or die. Email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. 
Oh, man. Jungle boogie, da-da-da, da-da-da, jungle. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Emails. And you get to start reading them, Liz. Woohoo! Although we are going to try... Jim has kindly volunteered to alternate so your voice isn't destroyed this episode. And I appreciate it immensely. Watch, watch me get the ones with terrible names to pronounce in them. Though. Yeah, all, all, all the bizarre names. I'm, I'm going to move them around so that you'll get all the ones <laughs> with the weirdo names. <laughs> okay, well, our first email, actually, we kind of crammed two emails together because they were both pretty short. But our first two into one email is from Kevin Long. And Kevin says, hi, guys, and Liz, and the old guy in the back. <laughs> Here is a picture of DJ. And, you know, in the original email, he also included a photo. And it's of a guy, a middle-aged guy in glasses, wearing a nun's outfit. Um, anyway, he says, here's a picture of DJ. If we raise enough money for Glenn to wear a nun's costume... I will make sure I am at the next NTRPG con. Or maybe you guys and Glenn could come to Tabletop Con in Salt Lake City. I have started over on my Grim Fairy Tales-based game. The new group that I am playing with is a play-by-email. There is still room if anyone is interested. They are now working for the Queen of Spades. They have not yet made it to the starting point of B1, and the cleric this time is worshipping a different god. Um, he goes the Jabberwock. <laughs> he goes on to say, this is my third email from the NTRPG Con show. I was wondering about Bad Mike's B1 game. Is it a six-hour game? I'm thinking about doing a B1 or B2 game at Tabletop Con next year, and I was just wondering if you guys are able to make it all the way through before the time is up. Thanks, Kevin. Well, yes, it is a six-hour slot. Um, generally, his game's always on the first evening of the convention from 6 p.m. to midnight. Um, I will say we have sometimes tended to run over and finish up around, say, you know, 1230 in the morning or whatever. Um, Two years ago, we didn't get anywhere near finishing it. I know. I don't know about this year and you guys. And it's it's really hard to to give a hard and fast because Bad Mike has, you know, five or six different versions of B1 that he lets the players choose from. You know, it's still the same module, but the backstory is different. And based on the backstory, the encounters are different. Um, so, yeah, depending, depending on which version you do, and I think two years ago, we had the one that the two of us were both in, I think we had chosen what was considered to be the most difficult of all of them. Well, actually, no. Was it Escape from Quasquaton, which is the most difficult? Anyway, um, it, it has varied. I've, I've played in it three times now, and we don't always finish. And the last one that we did, which I believe was the Escape from Quasquaton scenario, um, we go in, and shortly after we go in, there's an earthquake, and the door is sealed up. And the for that particular version of the game, the goal was to find a way back out. And we were going to have to go down into the lower levels and find a way out that way. Um, 
And that was made more difficult because every so often he would roll randomly to see if there's another earthquake. And at one point in the game, you know, part of our party was split up because half of us had gone down to the lower level and three of us were still up on the first level. And there's an earthquake and the stairwell gets filled up. So we're separated. Um, and um, we technically did all make it out in the time span that we were given for the for the game in that instance. Um, so yeah, I, I can't guarantee that it would be enough time. Um, it's just going to depend on what's going on and what your what your group does and there's just too many things but i i think that even if you don't totally finish it's it can still be a really fun convention game and if you do run it i hope you'll write in and let us know what happened <laughs> can i address the first part of the email oh sure 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 um I'm sure if it's for charity and we're raising money, neither Glenn or I would uh, have any problem with wearing a nun's outfit, but I wouldn't want to make a habit of it. Uh, oh. Uh, <laughs> ow. Ancient comedy master, Badum Ching. <laughs> oh, I'm done. <laughs> well, you're going to have to read the next one now, Jim, because I, I think Liz is... <laughs> Puns Liz into submission. That's right. But I'll read his la- But I'll read out his last name for you if you want me to, because I'm just a better person. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cagliano, you have some insight into pronouncing Italian names, right? I'm going to go for it. Go for it. And you give me my grade. Uh, All right. Our next email is from Michael Fiorentino. Oh God, I screwed it up. <laughs> Fior- Fiorentino. Woohoo! All right, Michael Fiorentino. Uh, says, hey there, Sodcasters. I was thr- thrilled to hear how well the North Texas RPG Con went and that it's steadily growing each year. It still amazes me that sometimes the old school ma- uh, gaming is so alive and vibrant even after years of being a confirmed member of the OSR crowd. I was sad to hear of Glenn's faceplant and his deck score seems a bit low these days. I suggest that next year he wear bracers of brachiation and swing <laughs> from the rafters, so to speak, or start hunting for a magic pool that raises dexterity, which might be and be one. Might. Uh, finally, I thought it odd that the show was broken into two segments, but after hearing Jim's outro and intro for them, I liked it. It reminded me uh, somewhat of the Delvers podcast, for example, side A and side B. And I must say, I simply love Jim's humor, especially his gamer's general warning at the end of each episode. I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, as when always, you generally, yeah, when you generally do the, you know... Podcasts of more than four hours are unnatural. Yeah, or <laughs> no no wizards were harmed in the making of this podcast. Dude, stop, <laughs> you know. mess, stop messing up my mock humility. Um, As always, thanks for producing such a wonderful podcast, and since Adventure 100 is looming near, we now look forward to Adventure 200. Oh, that gave me chills. (laughs) I just want to get past 100. Uh, Sincerely, Michael Fiorentino, Trailblades Adventures Guild. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Michael. Although although I have this mental image, Shaver Jai number 200. Wait, where's my teeth? Anyway. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. The one thing is just because the server uh, starts to choke if a podcast is over two hours, so we had to break that one into. But thanks. Yep. 
for not I really like the side A B thing too. It was cool. Necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, and depending on how many emails you manage to get through, we may need to do that for this one. <laughs> but we'll try to keep going and not have to do that. Our next email is from James V. West. And James writes, Hello, Sodcasters. Hello. Your podcast is really terrific. I have managed to make it to the 70s, a magical range. I was excited when DM Jim joined the crew, as I had already come to enjoy him on Spellburn, which led me to Save or Die, as well as Roll for Initiative and Thaco's Hammer. Oh, hear that, Vince? (laughs) (laughs) I love the comparison one of your listeners made in which you guys assume the roles of the Fantastic Four. Very fitting. My own entry into gaming was when a bunch of guys at the lunch table in seventh grade were rolling funky dice and discussing a plus one sword and an elf. I looked up from my fish sandwich to see a kid sitting behind a blue book as if hiding something, and everyone else holding sheets of paper and rolling dice. The book turned out to be the BX Expert Rules, which the same kid later traded me for some Thor comics, if memory serves. An uncle bought me the Mincer Red Box at a toy store in a local mall. I hand-copied tables from the AD&D PHB into a spiral-bound notebook. Oh, yeah. Armed with this concoction of Basic Expert, Red Box, and 1E, I rushed forward and stormed many castles and had a few crusades in the basement of the local library. Ah, the magical years. So here's a question for you folks. Do you have a stunts mechanic you like to use at your table for classic games? If not, how do you prefer to judge attempted stunts? I'm talking about special moves, called shots, and off-the-book actions not governed by a bunch of pedantic rules. The best example of a stunt rule that comes into mind is DCC's Mighty Deeds, which I adore. Done dirt cheap? (laughs) (laughs) I lean toward a simple called shot rule with a minus two, minus four, minus six adjustment for dazzling moves such as shooting a swinging rope or knocking a trio of orcs off a wall. This could be applied to an attack roll or to a save versus dragon breath to represent the fighter's better athletic abilities. What do you think? Do you need a clear rule, or do you just wing that sucker? James. Thanks, James. Well... I wing that sucker. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. <laughs> although I wing, it, I wing it old school. I just try and come up with a percentage in my head, and if it's a posed roll, it'll be d twenties against each other. Uh, yeah, I think Mike and I probably tend to handle it fairly similarly to one another, and we'll go with you know attribute checks. I was just thinking that. Yep. Yeah, attribute, attribute checks. Attribute checks. That's, That's an easy true. way to handle it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you want to you want to shoot this, you know, swinging rope, you know? Okay, try this, you know, and you'll dex roll check with twenty with, with your, you know, bonus if you have a high dex added, or if you have a crabby dex, that'll take away. Um, and, but yeah, you know, that's that's generally what that's generally what I would do. It's like, oh yeah, sure, you can try that. You know, roll against your dex, roll against your strength, roll against you know whatever seems to fit best for the for the thing. <laughs> And Although I, the 
I try to remember not to just reflexively do that if it's something that's uh, easily done. Like if you're already, you know, sitting on the guy's shoulders, it's not a called shot to wrap your arms around his eyes. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. If, if you say that's what you want to do, I'm like, okay, you do it. Now he's blind, but he's going to try and fight you. That's that's something that occasionally can even old schoolers can get caught in a rut of. You know, you should only be rolling dice if there's a significant chance of failure. In my opinion, it's because. You know, if you have to roll for every little thing. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, (laughs) I walk across the street. Well, roll a dex check to make sure you don't get run down by a wagon. You know, I'm walking. (laughs) Let me run something I do by you guys and you tell me what you think of it. Um, my, My particular group players love rolling dice. So sometimes they're like, I want to do this. What do I roll? And in my head, I'm like, they can only fail on a one and I let them roll. (laughs) <laughs> oh, sure. and, and they think they're trying to hit some kind of DC, and and I mean there is a DC. It's like five percent chance you host yourself; otherwise, you succeed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and that can fall under the same thing of you know rolling a die behind the screen, and they go, "What was that for?" Oh, nothing. And it really was for nothing. But you're just doing that to keep them on their toes. So no, I think that's pretty good too. I know we're going to talk about this some more because we've got another email coming up that touches on this. Okay. Hmm. Well, let's just move on then. Anyway, I I hope our answers were enlightening, James, and keep listening because, yeah, we're going to be touching on this subject again further on down. Our next email is from Gregory McKenzie, who says, Hi, I enjoy the show. I did a quick review of of the Xylarthan publication myself, as I like new takes on old things. I believe he's referring to the Seven Voyages of Xylarthan. Overall, it made me think you might also enjoy... Fenris 2D, which is an OGL clone I wrote a few years ago, which uses six-sided dice. There is a small introductory campaign setting as well called Gloomland. The more formally produced PDFs are at, and I'll read this, but we'll put it in the show notes too, at uh, busygamer.com slash modrpg01.html. Uh, he says, you may also enjoy some of the older pen and paper material I've put at the Busy Gamer at BusyGameMaster.com, a web space kindly donated by my friend Ernie Smalley. Uh, Notably Evermore, and there's a a link for that we'll put in the show notes, and Gadiris, Gadiris, uh, which also comes with its own link. All the best, Greg. Yeah, I checked out those links, and it's all free stuff for anyone who is interested in taking a look at it it's not a site where oh yeah you can get this you know if you're willing to pay you know 399 or whatever for the pdf you know it's all right there for you to grab for free so you know check it out <laughs> um yeah um mike hmm? aaron aaron smale aaron small is he smile yeah he does the odnd he does an OD&D group, right? Yeah, the OD&D Guild. OD&D group. Guild, yeah, Maybe that's it. in charge of that. So yeah. it's, it's, pronounced, it him. it's pronounced Smale. Smale? Yeah, yeah. S-M-A-L-E. Uh, Jim's, okay. Jim's first mispronunciation of the podcast. Well, I wasn't quite sure either when I was thinking I was going to have to read it if it was Small or Smale. But, yeah, I was thinking, that name sounds familiar. I think he's one of the OD&D you know, group people. Well, <laughs> if you're listening, Aaron, and of course you are, write in and let us know if we <laughs> totally your name butchered or not. your name again. <laughs> so, Liz, you, you found the Fenris 2D6? Um, I, um, I clicked on the links 
when I sent them out to everybody, I made them not hyperlinks because I personally can't stand having a hyperlink in the middle of my email, but that's just me. But yeah, when you go to the links, um, Busy have- Game Master is have- a... You'll have to help me find it because I wanted to read it before the podcast, and I ended up on some rule set called Chimera, hmm. which was really oh, good too. Aaron but it, Smiles. but it wasn't that's the one. Smiles he's, game. Okay, that was a really good system because it was uh, generic. It was kind of like a, a, a whatever you call the game mechanics before they were called D twenty version of GURPS, where you could use those rules to run any campaign. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a fantasy game, but it's not a clone. I'm given to understand it's it's like the fantasy trip, I guess. If you're well, talking about pre GURPS, well, no, the Chimera rules. Uh, I want to see the Fenris 2D6 rules too because I, I wasn't able to see those. I don't want to get off on a tangent on the other guys' rules, but uh, <laughs> okay. But it was a, a a similar to 2D6, except it was generic, meaning you could use the rule set for any genre. Oh, not not okay. just fantasy. If you wanted to run, you know, a top secret with the Chimera rules, you could. So check it out, everybody. All righty. Our next email is from Ron Anderson. And Ron writes, I found this site run by Jason Vay a couple of years ago and bookmarked it, especially for his OD&D supplementary material for campaigns in Conan's Hyboria. Jason has recently posted a supplement for Barsoomian campaigns that I thought might interest you. Even if you decide not to do a review, I hope you enjoy it. And he gives us a link to grayelf.com slash barsoom.pdf. And even though this has nothing to do with basic, I'm going to say it anyway. Jason Vay also does writing for Troll Lord Games, which Mike and I, you know, are... Well, Mike is really part of. I just did playtesting for stuff. But anyway. <laughs> hey, you, you ran Crusader Magazine, or you helped uh, run Crusader Magazine for a while. Okay, I did, so, I did lay out and stuff for a few issues. But Jason Vay, Castles and Crusades, <laughs> Troll Lord Games, and Siege Engine Games, Amazing Adventures. So he does good stuff. So, yes. The, the rule set he pointed us to, I, I was actually already familiar with. If I was going to run an o, Barsoom and OD&D rules, I would have used that rule set up until finding Red Warriors, uh, Warriors of the Red Planet because it's a, it's really good. It's all laid out exactly like it's one of the little D&D books, and he even scooped the art up. It's got uh, the Greg Bell art from the old uh, Warriors Warlords of Barsoom TSR book. Ooh, okay. So it really looks like it was... The way it's laid out and designed, it looks like it was from 1974. So is it a clone or just a reimagining? It's exactly the same uh, – conceptually the same thing as in uh, Warriors of the Red Planet. Uh, it's just a uh, prior version. He says recent. I think I stumbled across it over a year ago. It hasn't – it isn't too recent. So it's okay. exactly typeset like the Little Brown books. And if you just want to run OD&D with you know, White Apes and Green Martians and John Carter – that's your rule set right there. Woohoo! And All who, right. And who doesn't want to do that? With bunnies. <laughs> Barsoomian bunnies. Oh, you're Boy, giving, that'd be scary. You're giving me ideas. <laughs> Stop him before he kills again. That's true. Okay, well, thanks for pointing us in that direction, Ron, and we will yeah. definitely check it out. <laughs> Next email? Yes. Our next email is from Ernesto Plasmo, and Ernesto writes, Sirs and Madame, 
I was a bit surprised to hear DM Jim balk at the idea of called shots incurring some sort of penalty to succeed and then to inject the term player agency. I can't think of a game I've played where there was not some increased difficulty to call shots to the head. Even DCC has a form of that where a warrior must make his mighty deed roll to add special moves. Uh, in my opinion, player agency, in quotes, is about always letting players make their own choices and deal with their own consequences, not guaranteeing them success for anything, everything they attempt. Generally, it would be bad to say that the PC couldn't at least try to hit their target in the head, unless maybe it's a giant or some such, but why should they expect to automatically succeed? And what point? at what point does player agency become a player hand job? That's what Ernesto writes. <laughs> I did you balk? I can only think that either I misspoke or was misheard because I basically agree with the the thrust of his his entire email. Uh, one of the reasons I like DCC is the uh, mighty deed is only something the fighters, the warriors get, but it's uh, the little you guys understand. You roll your d twenty, and then depending on what level you are, you have another little die that if you roll it. You roll right. them at the same time, and if you hit it, you can do an extra thing. So that's that's that mechanically. The reason I like that is mechanically, if you hit, you hit no matter what. And then if you get the second die roll, you get to do the fancy thing. So there's no penalty being incurred for calling a shot. And I think that's maybe all I was talking about because it just makes common sense. If you're trying to do something extra hard, it should be at an increased difficulty. Yeah. Okay. The only thing I can think of is I, I I I harp on player agency a lot because frankly it's something I need to remind myself of because I tend to be a narrative DM and if I'm not careful, you know my players aren't getting to make their own decisions. So I school myself and practice on you know giving them opportunities because guys like uh, you know the the GMs I admire. Uh, I'm thinking I don't know if you guys know Adam Muskevitz, but he's one of the DCC guys up in. Uh, um, like uh, in the Michigan area, I just played in his game. He came down for a free RPG day, and he's the kind of GM I want to be. He's he's my hero because when no matter what bizarre we we skinned a bunch of chimpanzees and tried to disguise ourselves as chimpanzees to sneak in this uh, temple, and the whole time we're trying to plan all this stuff, he's sitting on his side of the screen just going, "That sounds like a great plan. I'm excited to see how this turns out." That's the kind of GM I want to be. That's what I mean when I'm talking about player agency. Okay. All right. Well. No, it sounds cool. I hope that clarifies things. I'm on your side, Ernesto. Yeah. So, no balking, or no intentional balking meant. Next email. Our next email is from David Bledsoe. And David writes, Dear Amigos, Really, I see Mike in a huge black sombrero, and it's awesome. I the see three amigos. Oh, old Wild West steampunk ha! with a sombrero. That would be awesome. Yeah. yeah I, I see Mike in a huge black sombrero too, Dave. You're not alone. And it, <laughs> it concerns her, frankly. Because <laughs> I am writing to give DM Glenn the chance he has hopefully been waiting for to talk about tunnels and trolls. He hasn't needed a chance to talk about it. <laughs> Through the OSR groups on Facebook and the tireless championing of DM, G- of DM Glenn, I have recently picked up the Tunnels and Trolls rules. I love them. Seeing as TNT is very much contemporary with classic D&D, a year after the Little Brown books, I think you should devote an episode. 
And being a huge fan of Dungeon Crawl classics, I see how much DCC draws from TNT, I think. DM Jim... OMG. <laughs> or, I think DM Jim will enjoy this, too. LOL. I, <laughs> I've heard all but the few ten or so episodes of the podcast, and I don't think you have spoken at length on Kit and St. Andre's masterful take on fantasy role-playing. Thanks. Gracias. Dave a.k.a. Dave the Moderate on the OSR forums. Dave la Moderata. <laughs> oh, I saw you in a bueno. when you pronounced gracias. <laughs> taco bueno. <laughs> and speaking of taco, uh, we appreciate it. Um, but, you know, our, our goal here is to cover classic D&D and its retro clones and Tunnels and Trolls, while a great game, particularly if you're stuck somewhere and you you know need solos they do some great solo adventures i've even used some of their solo adventures and just when it came to mechanics used classic D, and they turned out pretty well on the other hand there is another podcast at wgpn that this would be ideal for dead game society indeed so right over to them and Maybe they'll be able to cover it. Yes, tell them you want to hear about Tunnels and Trolls. Yes, that's right up their alley. This is how retarded I can be sometimes. I was reading the email earlier before the show, and I'm thinking, well, we should just redirect to Dead Game Society. I'm like, oh, no, they can't cover it either because there's a new version of Tunnels and Trolls. It's still being produced. Oh, yeah. Which, if Crap. that stopped them, their first five episodes wouldn't have been about classic D&D. So what am I talking about? Well, they, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good, point. Good point. So there you go. It's a hole in my old school gaming thing. I've never read those rules. And I, I was actually, uh, through a set of circumstances I can't talk about until a certain announcement after Gen Con happens, I, I'm looking into that rule set soon. <laughs> yeah, um, it was actually the first fantasy RPG other than D&D I learned to play back in 1980, 81. Um, and, yeah, it... it did things interesting. It was the original box set, which I fortunately managed to get another copy of, because um, I never actually owned it. I just uh, played with the various guys, uh, the Delta Area War Gamers, when they ran it. Um, it's it's a different system. It's you know nobody can claim you know despite the percent liar <laughs> from the original set. It really does, especially you know once it moved on, it does things its own way. It's not. You know, just a clone of D&D. But well, yes. I will surely be able to pick up a copy at, in the dealer room at Gen Con. Oh, surely. I mean, I want the old rules. That's what I want to see. Because I have a historical appreciation for it. Because I know, I know the story of, you know, Rick Loomis being at one of the original Gen Cons when they were still up in Wisconsin. And this kid just showing up and plopping a bunch of things down and saying, I wrote, I, I had a too hard a time understanding D, the D&D rules. Here's what I wrote. Will you sell it for me? I mean, that's an awesome story. Yeah. And I seem to recall it was cheaper than D&D, too, at least initially. <laughs> Those things never change. You know, 40 years ago, everybody was bitching because the OD&D cost $10 for the box. <laughs> and there's a, a DCC Kickstarter now for a $50 box set. And I'm pretty sure $10 40 years ago is more money than $50 is today. But there's still people complaining, $50 for a box it's set? It's fairly comparable. <laughs> for, yeah, about 40 it would have worked out too, but yeah. Well, let's face it, gamers are cheap. 
if it's something like limited income too although on the other hand you know i say that and then i think about people who are talking about how they're backing just dozens of kickstarters it's like yeah and i feel like you know we're lucky if we can devote you know money toward a kickstarter maybe once or twice a year yeah. So well, remember when we were in the ECS and and reenactment, and they were going, you know, people were going, "Oh wow, twenty five dollars a year I, for a membership? I can't afford that. That's too much." Hey, let's go to a concert this weekend for a hundred bucks. Yeah, let's drive into Dallas and go to a Metallica concert or whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, well, I don't want to um, sound like I don't have appreciation for people who are not in the circumstances to throw money around like that because I've been in those circumstances where you know there's the twenty five dollar starter set I want and I don't have the money. I, that's different from you know. Yeah, $10, it's hard to get through Taco Bell drive through for yeah. under $10. Yeah. And once you've eaten that food, it's gone. <laughs> and a game is forever. The, the, the book and the box set will be with you for months and months and months in the future. <laughs> but I will say, you know, D&D, when it came out being $10 box set for three books, you know, at the same time, the average Avalon Hill or SPI war game was 12 to 15 so it's like, you know, it was comparable at the time. It was probably high compared to what amounted to, you know, little companies out of their basement, you know, putting out what amounted to fanzine rule sets, maybe a bit high. But, you know, it was hardly the most expensive thing on the blog. But anyway. So next email, maybe? Yeah. Sure. You've got my email. Call me, maybe. Um <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Andrew, I can't believe I admitted to knowing that song. <laughs> Holy crap. Um, Andrew, I know it's going to be the end, end credit song now. <laughs> no, it won't. I promise next, that. Next, we're going to be finding out you're a believer. <laughs> uh, I work with many young people. Uh, <laughs> I can't read now. Thanks. Andrew Branstad. Andrew Bradstad writes the podcast and says, I've been listening to your podcast for what feels like forever. Been, <laughs> that could we, be taken very many different ways. Recording this episode has already <laughs> felt like forever. Uh, yes, I'm sure I sent you an email a few years ago, but I felt it was time to stop being a procrastinator and send you all some kudos. Uh, my favorite thing about your podcast is the personalities of the four hosts. Listening to you guys makes me feel like I'm hanging out with the world's friendliest local gaming store, just shooting the breeze about Dungeons & Dragons. I, God, That's exactly how I felt when I listened to the show before I was on it, which was you guys. Um, <laughs> your current lineup is the absolute best best mix of chemistry you've ever had. Mike is great in his role as primary host. Liz is the steady voice that keeps you all grounded. Glenn is the one-of-the-kind wild card, and Jim comes across as one of the genuinely nicest people I've ever had the pleasure to listen to. <laughs> you fooled him! Speaking of work, everybody at work is laughing at that. Um, uh, I, I know that a lot of work goes on behind the scenes to put together each episode. None of you get paid for this, yet your love for this silly hobby shines through in every podcast. If anyone ever tells you otherwise, please let them know that a professional radio broadcaster has air-checked your product and given it the highest approval. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Praise indeed. 
on a more specific note, it was Castles and Crusades that got me interested in this whole OSR thing in the first place, and Mike's Shadow of the Halfling Hall was a big part of that. While I've not run the module proper, I have done like many referees and stolen liberally from that work for my own homebrewed adventures. Cool. That's part of why it's there. I also need to share a little love Glenn's way and say that Thaco's Hammer is on my regular podcast rotation as well. I'm more of a basic D&D guy, but 2E was my first experience with Dungeons & Dragons back when I was just a pup in the late 80s and early 90s. You do a good job reminding me of the fun I had with that version of the rules. I know that one of you is having to read this increasingly long love fest of an email aloud, so I'll wrap things up. To me, the Saber Die crew is like a surrogate gaming group. More than a handful of anecdotes I tell around the gaming table start with, I heard this funny story on Saber Die. Thanks again for all you do, and please keep up the good work for a long, long time. Sincerely, Drew, and there's a P.S. Uh, P.S. Hey, DM Judge Jim. Before I forget, DCC is the best version of D&D since D&D. I'm going to have to agree with him. Uh, <laughs> If you do say so yourself. But that's most unexpected. That's my personal gaming taste. Uh, You keep teasing me with vague mentions of this Mutant Crawl Classics game you're brewing up. Do me a favor, won't you? Shut up and take my money already. Uh, Well, Drew, I'd love to do that. But uh, (laughs) I I made uh, what I think is a wise decision rather than to uh, third-party publish it independently myself to seek publication through Goodman Games and Joseph Goodman, and I'm pursuing that process. And if you really want to see the game in print and give somebody your money, by all means, uh, email Joseph Goodman at info at goodmangames.com and express that sentiment. (laughs) Tell him you want to give him money. (laughs) Joseph's a canny guy. He gets enough of those emails, it'll happen. Well, thanks, Drew. We appreciate the the kudos. And I'm glad you like Shadows of the Halfling Hall. As I've said before, it was ironically written partially to show people who complain, nothing interesting ever happens in a halfling shire. Oh, really? (laughs) Surprise! Now now it does. Now it does. (laughs) And there's even a kobold or two. A couple. Is it me, or we got some warm, fuzzy emails going here? I, I know. It, it's great. And I, I'm feeling the love. <laughs> it makes me want to be a better podcaster. Go forth and sin no more. I think our listeners show shocking good taste in podcasts. Mm. You, you Incredibly. Right. All right. Next email. All right. Our next one is from Robert Fisher. And Robert writes, Greetings and salutations. Robert. In episode 94, you touched on one of my pet peeves. Sometimes we use the term role-playing as a shortcut for something that isn't precisely role-playing. For example, speaking in character is role-playing, but role-playing is not speaking in character. Speaking in first person is not better role-playing than speaking in third person. It is simply a style choice for one mode of role-playing. While I do often speak in character, I have no problem with a player who chooses not to. Role-playing is choosing in character. Those choices can be expressed through speaking in first person, speaking in third person, and innumerable other ways. Even if you do speak in first person, that shouldn't be the only way your in-character choices are expressed. 
Likewise, being descriptive in combat is not role-playing. It is merely a style of playing that decorates the role-playing. Role-playing in combat is making your strategic, tactical, and action choices in character. And speaking in character or not is a possible action. Descriptive combat is not better than just the facts combat. Indeed, I find myself switching between both as suits the combat, the context. Anyway, that's my opinion. Your mileage may vary, of course. Keep up the good work. DM Robert. Thanks, Robert. And um, I think I remember the episode where we were talking about that, and I think it was part of the discussion where we were talking about, you know, our friends Connie and Alan joining in yeah. the gaming group. I'm pretty sure that's where that all came from. Yeah, and again, a lot of the things, what role-playing is or isn't, and I believe we hit on it then, but let me reiterate, it depends on what your group wants to do, what your group is comfortable with, because description of combat may not be what your group or your DM doesn't feel is that important to the game. Others may feel it's vital to the game. Um, I know some people who get very bored with the, you know, roll, hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, 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 miss, miss, rinse, repeat. Perry repost. Yeah. Boing. Boing, boing, boing. <laughs> I gotta say, you'll just have to imagine Daffy Duck's bill. <laughs> I, I gotta say, this email made me think because uh, I, I really like the um, parsing of, okay, it's not either or, this one thing is a subset of the other, and it's not the only thing in the subset. So it actually made me think because I have a tendency to go with more like what the discussion was before that it's speaking in voice and the things that we talked that I remember us talking about last episode and I, I like the points that uh, Robert made in the email. Yeah, and like we said, you know, that's how we prefer to role play, but Connie and Alan weren't ready for that. Uh, that wasn't how they learned a game, and they were uncomfortable with us doing it. Now that didn't make ours way better than the way you know the third person method they learned. It was just our personal preference. And again, this gets back to what does your group want? What is your group expecting out of the game? And if you have a group that's united in that, that's that that's well and good. But sometimes you have that one player too, who who mm-hmm. is just the person like you've talked about that's not comfortable doing it. And I mean, there's no profit in berating the person to behave in a way they don't want to role play. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if you can make, you know, give them the exception of if they want to do things in third person, then, you know, as long as everybody's having fun, then that's great. That was an extra thoughty email. Thank you. Yeah. Well, he's a veteran of Dragon's Foot, so, you know. (laughs) Meaning I'm used to saying something in a way that can't possibly be misinterpreted, even though 20 people are going to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd like to think that, you know, you sp- spend your time on Dragon Sweat long enough, you get fairly thoughtful about your responses. And, and, hey, you think it's bad now? You should have waited the, back in 2001, 2002, when, you know, just hordes of people who were convinced that third edition was the best thing since sliced bread and no prior D&D was even worth wiping your shoes on would pile over to Dragon's Foot and attack us? Uh, don't get me wrong. Wow. I love I love reading Dragon's Foot. I find it very informative. It's just not where I go for uh, rhetoric <laughs> discussion. Yeah, um, I I still poke my head over there, but I very limit. Yeah, you know, I limit myself to the classic D and D section and 
you know, um, looking for gamers. That's pretty much it. And yeah, I mean, whenever somebody asks the question, you know, why should paladins have to be lawful? You know, oh my gosh. Not only am I not going to bother to answer that, odds are there's no reason for me to answer or give an opinion because there's already 20 people who have already given their opinions on it. So I was like, okay, I may read it to see if anybody says something particularly pithy, like when Scott Anderson made that comment about racist class. You know, when I first saw that, I was like, oh no, more people are going to argue whether it's a good or bad thing. But I read it anyway, and I'm glad I did because it was pretty pithy and, and thoughtful. Informative. So, you know, anyway, next email. Our next email is also from James V. West. J.V. West writes, Hello, Sodders. I've been listening to your show for about a year with a few breaks here and there. The show has really improved, and I feel like you've totally hit your stride, especially after DM Jim joined up. The four of you have great chemistry. I do not like the top five review method. Uh, Maybe it will grow (gasps) on me. Maybe not. We've speaking of dragon's foot controversies, we've created our own. Uh, hey, we ask for people to tell us their opinions. That's yeah, true. Yeah, maybe it will grow on me, maybe not. But I am currently in the middle of the first gazetteer reviews. Yay! Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, is that the wrong emphasis? <laughs> he says yay i'm sorry there was a lot of question little, mark in little, the email a little, little me leaked in there we've got another one coming up in just an episode or two james so stay tuned uh and i just missed the old method where everyone piped in with their thoughts a bit more randomly we can do that <laughs> we're good at that uh bx is my poison of choice when i'm not running dcc uh when i started playing sometime around 1984 it was the mensa red box and a beat-up copy of the marsh cook expert rule book that i why is everybody's first. copy of expert beat up you notice that well we we've got some beat up basic expert rule books ourselves sitting around on our gaming shelves so um although i think for well you know, the ones that had the, the holes punched so you could put them in the binder? I was going to say, I put those, mine in my Fantastic Four binder. Those get really beat up, you know, because when you're turning the pages and they're still in the binder and it gets them, you know, something about being in the binder, I think, you know. Yeah, if you don't puts cut a out lot the more spine. Wear. Yeah, which yeah. I never did. And No, me neither. Yeah, and it really beat up my basic expert books. You know, actually having them in a binder, you know, looking back on it, maybe I shouldn't have. But, yeah, so. Yeah. That, that's, it, it, that's kind of my theory anyway. <laughs> reading old Dragon magazines, I remember a lot of people back then were talking about how great it would be to have binder books for those and the monsters. And I think once TSR actually put them out, it was like, yeah, okay, this isn't quite as cool as we thought. <laughs> I'm so not a person who cares. I, maybe it's because I'm an artist. I, as long as it's not falling apart, that's all I needed to be is intact. I actually enjoy the patina when things are beat to hell. Yeah. Um, maybe it's something like that. You know, everybody complains about Unearthed Arcana falling apart. I mean, everybody has complained about that. Liz and I have never had problems with our Unearthed Arcana. Well, when, uh, it, when it falls apart and you can't use it anymore, then I got a problem. But until then. Well, yeah. I just Anyway. Wrote. Oh, yeah, there's more of this email to go. <laughs> uh, James continues. Uh, I'm currently. See, we're going re- just with our thoughts. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See? Instant service. 
James continues, I'm currently running a Labyrinth Lord game on Monday nights and loving it. I'm using the AEC to bring in extra races, classes, spells, and other goodies, and I am writing modules based on the adventures I run. My previous published module is for Osric, but the current one on my drawing table is Labyrinth Lord. I'll shoot you a copy when it's finished, and you can tell me what sucks about it. Uh, we'll be happy to Not enough it. kobolds. <laughs> Put in a rumor table. I'll give it an A+. Ascending <laughs> armor class. Oh, sorry. That was a cheap <laughs> cheap shot uh channeling there a bit ivory uh take care and keep up the critical hits thanks to you guys i'm planning to buy whisper and venom as well as a number of other gems i might have otherwise overlooked jv west thanks james thanks hear that zach maybe you'll forgive us for not being able to come to the mini con the north texas mini con you're going to be at this coming saturday that's just another one already yeah, yeah. Well, it's because Zach is coming into town, and so Bad Mike has put together another mini-con just on the spur of the moment to accommodate Zach's presence in Dallas, and it's going to be chariot racing and, you know, a lot of tabletop stuff. Oh, I'm a that, dumbass. I saw that on Facebook. Yeah, but anyway, it's, you know, it's not something that we would ordinarily be able to participate in, and we've got the game that we were talking about earlier, you know, where we're going to be introducing our friends to basic D&D. So it, it kind of turned out the timing was bad all around. But, you guys, you guys yeah. live down there. I have a question. How does Bad Mike stay married? <laughs> we, well, um... his, his wife has a lot of, you know, really cool you know, interests that she does. She does costuming and stuff. You know, she's great on a sewing machine. And as a matter of fact, you know, the last time we spoke to both of them, we were having dinner with the two of them. And, you know, she was talking about wanting to get some, you know, patterns for, you know, things like, you know, not just medieval costumes, but steampunk and, you know, doing dice bags and things like that that could be sold at future North Texas cons. And, ba- and Bad Mike's cool. double Speedo outfit. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that, you know, it goes a long <laughs> way to keeping their marriage spicy. <laughs> so so what you're telling me is he, uh, he Bad Mike stays married because he pulled the same bastard move that Good Mike <laughs> made, which well, is to find the mythical unicorn woman to marry who's well, I don't, just I awesome don't and she, patient. Yeah, she doesn't game. But she doesn't have a problem with gaming, and she's certainly interested in, you know, participating. She's got a level of geekness to herself. Yeah. So. Bastard. Yeah. <laughs> she is super cool. I mean, <laughs> so you I mean, just need to move down to Texas, and I, that's where you'll find these women, see? And so all the unicorns live in Texas, so yep. come on down. <laughs> oh, God. Now I just pictured a unicorn with a long horn. <laughs> oh, and, oh, God. No. And there's the new mini for the next interview. <laughs> <laughs> and on that tragic, awkward note. Okay, wow. next email. Um, John Hirschberger. Taco! Oh, yes, hey, Sodcasters. Taco John here. Thanks for producing the fun and informative classic D&D podcasts. I'm Part pretty- of Black Publishing. <laughs> I'm pretty new to the podcast experience, but this summer I have listened to most of the Spellburn episodes and have been cherry-picking a few episodes of the Save or Die and Roll for Initiative podcasts. For me and my time, the Save or Die episodes are the most relevant to my home 
um, are the most relevant to my home AD&D game of these three old-school podcasts. We lean more toward the OD&D end of the AD&D spectrum than we do to the second edition end of the spectrum. So kudos to all of you. I have several questions or whatnot to bring up to the collective Save or Die DM Brain Trust. Feel free to answer from the point of view of classic D&D, as well as from the point of view of other old-school D&D games, like AD&D, etc. My group is a hardcore first-edition AD&D group. I'm the group's evil bastard DM. Woohoo! First question. My group recently came into possession of a specialized deck of many things. Uh, here we go. <laughs> the deck of many things was specialized in that there were two bonus cards in the deck, which would help those drawing the cards, i.e. the PCs, gain entrance to an extra planar tomb that was sort of key to advancing the mission and driving the story forward. In other words, their situation necessitated that they willingly draw cards from the specialized deck in the hopes that they would draw one or both of the bonus cards. That is evil. (laughs) To make this long story short, one of the PCs drew the King of Spades, the Void. (laughs) As a result of this draw, this PC's body still functions, but his soul is trapped elsewhere the location of which was determined by expending a wish spell. My questions are thus. I know from another podcast, Spellburn, that Judge Jim has had his party find or come to possess a deck of many things. How about the other judges? Have your PCs ever come to possess a deck of many things in your games? Yes. Have any of your PCs drawn the void? Yes. Yes. If so... Where did you have the drawing PC's soul entrapped? Where, as in, what plane or physical location? No idea, because I was the player. (laughs) Hades, the Nine Hells, the elemental plane of water, in Orcus's pinky ring gym? (laughs) That sounds cool. Well, the pinky ring of Orcus. That's, That's awesome. Players in my game just six months ago had the deck of many things, and boom, out comes the void. And uh, the player that got the wish spells, instead of expending his wish spell to determine the soul's location, he just used it to wish him back, and that was the end of that. Mm. (laughs) Well, now my character's mind went into the void, and basically I had to roll up another character. And that's when I rolled up a character. As revenge to the DM, I rolled up Edmund Blackadder from the first Blackadder series. Um. <laughs> He's the sting and the black adder. He was. Like, How long did that guy last? Uh the game, uh, the campaign ended before anything horrible happened to him. It was uh, Spelljammer. <laughs> okay, that was the one where he ended up killing a Neogi in a lifeboat by beating him to death with an oar. <laughs> because he had had his the, the Neogi missed on a crit and had his fangs stuck into the side of the lifeboat, so he pull back his short sword, taste the sting of the black adder, and then fumbled. fumbled, and it flew off into space. Oh, damn. <laughs> so he grabbed an oar and beat him to death. So, And the hippopotamus people, whose names I can never remember, thought that Cheered. was... Yes, they thought that was just amazing. He, he, your, your character became their hero for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thought he was a great warrior when he was just a sleazy little thief, but oh well. 
So anyway. Well, the, are we to the end of the email or are we answering still? Uh, there, there's still a little bit more. Um, his last question is, also, did your PCs ever undertake a quest to try to recover the entrapped soul? I ask because that is what my group intends to do next. That's it for now. I got to run. Thanks again for the informative and insightful Save or Die podcasts. Hope to see all of you at a convention soon. John, Taco John, Hirschberger. Who is sadly not coming to Gen Con, so I will not see him next week. Aw, oh, man. Is Grodog or neither one of them from uh, Blackblade going to be there? I don't know about Grodog. I, I just, something came up in this. I mean, John ran the Goodman Games booth last year, and something came up. He just can't do it this year. But I'll, oh, okay. I'll, I'll see him later. All right. He's like he's like the greatest guy ever. Uh, yeah. Oh, I was basically said I was going to say not this past uh, North Texas, but the one before it. I think. Uh, I think it was um, two years before. Oh, now. was it two years before that? We played in Taco John's Castle Greyhawk as uh, in one e. It was pretty fun. And we ran into harpies and everything. Yeah. You almost never run into harpies. The and the pre-gen I was given was named Tiberius, so I was playing him like Will Shatner's. James Tiberius Kirk, which was a lot of fun. Well, John just did me a real solid that I don't want to to articulate on air because then everybody will expect the same thing from him. But thank you, John, for what you did. It was a result of something we talked about on a prior episode. Okay, cool. But uh, if I was caught flat-footed in that situation, I'd just reach over to the shelf and grab uh, the DCC Adventure, which, by the way, you could adapt to any OSR product. Um Blades Against Death, because it's a whole adventure where the party goes into the dimension of death to retrieve a fallen comrade's soul. If, if it's flat-footed, I would prefer, under normal circumstances with enough prep time, to make up my own thing. And all of those ideas are good. Nine Hells, Elmo, Plane of Fire. Pinky Ring. <laughs> I li- I li- Pinky I li- Ring of Orcas. Ah, if it's AD&D and they're about 15 to 18th level, that's that's a good idea. Go, go yeah. deal with Orcas. Yeah, I... I I give him kudos for his gaming group that they're willing to quest to find the soul of their bud because at least especially back in the 80s either nobody wanted to touch a deck of many things because they were terrified or if somebody's character got voided they were just kind of oh well okay roll up another character because we're not going to go look for him you know too bad well I didn't often play very high level characters and i still don't often play them um being in chases games um that's really that's been the name level yeah Yeah. that's been really the only opportunities i've had to play you know eighth ninth tenth level characters and above um mostly i've tended to prefer low to mid-level campaigns um so so the deck of many things is the perfect way to draw a card and get 50,000 XPs and jump to fifth level. <laughs> or a castle or... But by the same token... Or a demon in your face. Yeah, by the same token, if you do draw the void and you're a party that's only, say, third or fourth level, you don't have the... You, you don't have access to a wish spell very easily. And I think that maybe low-level players, you know, just... They may automatically think... What can we do? You know, we find out this guy's soul is in one of the nine planes of hell. It's like, I can barely cast a fireball, you know, and, uh, and we're supposed to go rescue him from there? He's yeah. like, There's no way. Draw more cards. There's wishes in there. Yeah. You know, 
or get the dice out and roll up a new character. <laughs> yeah, so I mean that that I could see that would be a problem if you are playing, you know, a pretty low level group. It's like, well, holy crap, you know, we'd like to rescue them, but what can we do? We can't do anything, you know. And although I will say, as an NPC point of view, I have frequently used whenever there's like a reincarnation spell. Mm-hmm. And say a PC's spirit gets reincarnated, say, into an elf. Um, I've used the rationale that the elf body they are in was of an adventurer in the past who got the void card. And that's why their body was empty and thus available for a reincarnation. Hmm. But, but yeah, I've never, I've never had a party go questing after somebody's soul because, well at least back in the 80s when we did play at those high levels on a regular basis we were kind of yeah your 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 group was kind of kind of mean <laughs> yeah kind of cutthroat i mean ben and i would have probably gone after each other's characters but you know for the most for the most of the rest part it's like eh, too bad too bad to be you see I, john's got me really thinking this through he didn't say what level his group was i'm thinking you know like lower tier Extra planar, Tiamat's good for that. Go, go, oh, yeah. Go, go down to her level and, you know, she's got her consort dragons around her, but it's not like it's Orcus where you're just going to die. Except when she's out chasing Venger. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, <laughs> you can, maybe you can wait while she's, you know, out doing that and sneak in while she's gone. Yeah. <laughs> Tiamat's making a grocery run. Let's go on in. And <laughs> well, I hope that helps, John. <laughs> I hope it does. And if it didn't... I encourage you to write into the other podcast because maybe they can give you better cancer. I mean, if it was DCC, I'd just say send them all to some really screwed up Doug Kovacs dimensional pocket where nothing is like anything they've ever gained before. And that way they won't know what's going on. And turn them into rabbits. True. True. Turn them into rabbits. Yeah. yeah. Next email. Next email. Uh, is it JV West again? It is JV West again. He, he, he's our he's our, our brand he's our brand new Saturday night thing. It's the Wild Wild West. Thanks, James, for writing emails. He gets the Vic Shade Award. <laughs> uh, James writes, Sodders, I am disappointed. Nobody made a wisecrack about the high heels on the warrior from the cover of Gazetteer One. Come on, people, high heels. <laughs> what were we thinking? <laughs> Which brings me to. <laughs> Well, I've got an excuse for that, but <laughs> never mind. I'm sorry. I was self-editing there. Um, back to the email, which brings me to the point. When I was young and making up tons of D&D characters, I would go to great lengths to describe what they were wearing. Perhaps it was the adolescent in me, but I often created female characters that I wanted to be dressed like Red Sonya. Uh, okay, I admit it. I'm 43, and I still do that. <laughs> But back on track. Uh, how do you judge the effects of unusual attire in your games? I mean, if it isn't extreme, I don't want to make any special judgments at all. A fighter can fight in a cloak as well as without. A wizard can cast in a bathrobe as well as a pair of breeches. Uh, if you tell me you are wearing a chainmail, if you tell me you are wearing chainmail, I don't really care what it looks like. If you draw a red Sonya and your chainmail amounts to a bikini, it really isn't a big deal at my table. If your beefy barbarian fighter dresses like He-Man and you call it leather armor, I'm cool with it. This is fantasy. Let the kids have fun. 
How do you judge it? Would you make the warrior on the cover of Gaz 1 pass a dex check every once in a while when fighting in those heels? Admittedly, I'm tempted to. What are your thoughts? Does realism trump fantasy? Thanks, James West. Well, there's a lot of dimensions to what he's actually asking there. Yeah, the the, the whole fighter in the high heels thing, you know, just talking about the Gazetteer number one cover in and of itself. You know, I I didn't want to spend a lot of my time making fun of the cover and you know saying, well, this is obviously a a substandard product because of what this woman is wearing. <laughs> but, so instead you just bash the blue tower on every page. Yes, I think that was far more legitimate. But <laughs> but to but to get back to that, it it was it was kind of weird, you know, she had you know, what was almost a Zorro mask looking kind of helmet, or at least I'm assuming it is a helmet on. But yeah, and then she's got this bustier, you know, top plate, which has, you know, her shoulders are completely bare. And then, you know, round shield and sword, and then she's wearing leather pants and thigh high boots with heels and what look like spurs. Um, attached to the bottoms of the boots. Heels and spurs. Heels and spurs, you know. So, yeah, I mean... Wow. I, I, I have no words, and yes, it. I think it is totally legitimate to make fun of it. Um, <laughs> but I was going to be nice at the time, and, you know, I'm pretty sure that no one actually wears that inside the pages of Gazetteer 1. In, you know, in many instances, as... We have learned with some of your modules with Troll Lord, many times the images on the cover have absolutely nothing to do with what goes on inside <clears throat> the adventure itself. Burden rage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where you have the dryad in chains being carried off by a whole bunch of... Um, randy-looking little satyrs, and this never happens in yeah. adventure. I remember being told about that cover, and I'm like, this never happens in the whole adventure. Yeah, well, we like it. Okay. <laughs> of Obviously, course you like it. There for Guys. sales. <laughs> so, yeah, but... Well, there is the editorial aspect of it, where even if it's, you know, Jeff Easley painting, which I don't think that particular gazetteer was Jeff Easley, but whoever it was, you know, is presumably being art directed to do something that yeah. may, may or may not agree with their personal tastes. Right. Um, I, I do think, you know, to an extent, um, you know, he has a point, you know, wizards casting in breaches, you know, to get back to our weekly game, our wizard Jonathan, he does not dress as the traditional wizard. He doesn't wear robes. You know, he wears normal clothes. And so he doesn't, he doesn't look like, you know, you're not going to look at him in the party and say, oh, that's obviously the wizard. More of a merchant type. Kill him. Well, right. If you're a smart player, why would you wear the pointy hat? That just singles yeah. you out as a target. You might as well paint a target on your chest. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so he dresses like a regular guy. You know, he doesn't wear armor, of course, but, you know, he wears normal clothes that he can easily move around in. Um, on the other hand, I'm... Maybe it's because I'm a girl, but I'm not. I'm going to call out a player who says they want to wear a red Sonya chainmail bikini and still get their full, you know, AC four, you know, armor class. You know, unless it's magic, 
you know, then I'll give it to them. But you know, <laughs> I, 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 there's only so far I'm willing to go. You know? Well, I have, I have two concerns about that, and realism is only one of them. You know the other one, right? Hmm. I mean, I just – me personally, your mileage may vary. I consider myself a feminist, so as I've gotten older and more mature, I find myself less and less patient with the adolescent depiction of females in fantasy fiction. I'm not saying it's wrong, and I'm not saying you aren't free to enjoy it yourself. I'm just talking about where my tastes roll. And, the, and that – as far as game mechanics and stuff go, the realism is part of it too. But I, you know, so if it's NPCs I'm presenting, they're going to be dressed appropriately, functionally. You know, a, a woman who wears uh, full plate mail does not have the plate boobs outside because that would kill you if you got hit there. They just regular chest, right? Like the that lady champion who's all over Facebook, who's a real life, you mm-hmm. know, swordsman, swordswoman. Uh, um, I had a breastplate briefly when. Mike and I were in reenactment, and I did rapier combat, and I actually... That you know, is so I, awesome! Well, I started out, when I was doing it, I had just the padded gambeson. And, Which is the minimum armor generally and required. And I, I took a shot to the boob, and oh my god, that hurt Ow. so much. And so I had a steel breastplate made to fight in after that. And, yeah, because um, we weren't fighting with like little wire foils or anything. These were basically just were a step thinner than, yeah. They were they were slaughter bladed rapiers. They were just a, a hair thinner than a saber. And they had rabbit blunts put on the end, um, but even so, it it was a really hard impact, and it hurt like crazy for a couple of days afterwards. Um, but yeah, I had a breastplate made and it did not have, you know, boobs coming off of it. I mean, there was a roundedness to it to accommodate the shape of my chest, but there were not individual breasts worked into the breastplate, you know? Um it was and since I'm pretty small chested anyway, you know, in the end it didn't look all that much different from a regular breastplate that a guy would wear. Um so yeah, definitely. It's realistically, it's not going to be you know just goofy looking. <laughs> so so to parse it down, I mean, the realism versus fantasy—that's on you and the the taste of you and your group. Yeah. I mean, I I have my area I'm comfortable with. I would not uh, feel comfortable unless it gets to a ridiculous extreme, imposing my taste on my players. If if I have a player who's just dying to dress like a runway model for some reason, <laughs> I mean, the AC would reflect what that player is doing. But, I mean, I've got a guy whose favorite character is an orangutan who wears red bandoliers, a red fur cloak, and, and a trans-dimensional wrestling championship belt, and, and, and loves it. I mean, he's... So he kind of looks like Zardos. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the orange fur and being an orangutan. I mean, he's a sight, but he thinks it's the greatest thing ever. I mean, when he rolls into a village that nobody's met him before, they take note of that. You know, there are there are some game mechanics in there, but he loves it, and he's all about it. And, you know, go for it. Have all the fun you want. Yeah, talking about Jason Vey, uh the gray elf we mentioned earlier, he's the author of the pulp game uh on the Siege Engine called Amazing Adventures. It covers the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, one of the rules he has in there that isn't realistic, 
but it encourages the genre is he actually gives AC bonuses for like wearing a fedora hat or a particularly noteworthy scarf or, you know, leather jacket, you know, stuff that plausibly doesn't have a lot of a actual armor value, but there's a reward in order to encourage genre dressing for characters. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily a way I would do it, but it's certainly a way to encourage that sort of behavior if that's what you're wanting to do. I suppose if you want to encourage chainmail bikinis, you know, that's a way you could do it. Um, I'm not even going to mention, you know, my view on realism versus, you know, fantasy. All I got to say is lighten up, Phil. (laughs) Anyone who knows me on the show knows I'm a historian. So, you know, I think that's a given what my answer is on that. So not that I don't mind the idea of, you know, women in chainmail bikinis, but, you know... Well, plausibly. I've, I've always been of the opinion, at least as far as fantasy art goes, you know, women in chainmail bikinis are just fine as long as I get to see some oiled, well-muscled men in, in a loincloth. Yeah, in a little bitty loincloth. You know, I have no problem with providing cheesecake for the guys as long as the girls get some beefcake to go along with it. You know. Equal opportunity here. Let's let's all be well, sexy and barely clothed. See, I, I understand your reasoning there, but that doesn't work. That that doesn't. It can't be co-equal because men don't care. You yeah. Know, well, well, you want me to get naked and prance around? Here you go. <laughs> like that uh, comedian who was talking about. He couldn't imagine how they get women to be in porn movies. He knows how they get men to be in porn movies. They ask them. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, so anyway. I I suspect we may be drifting slightly off of our family-friendly... And far afield, which explains why we have the top five. (laughs) This is what you get when you get random. I I think maybe our answer to some of these emails explain why we keep getting more and more emails. Um. (laughs) So, yeah, again, it's whatever works for you and your table. Um, Personally, I prefer more realism than fantasy, as anyone who's listened to the show for a while no doubt knows. Um, but I know people who just think the idea of realism is, you know, why be realistic at all? It's a fantasy game. Be fantasy. So in the end, it's whatever works for you and your table. Yep. I mean, before I sound like I'm up on too high and mighty a feminist pulpit, I mean, when I was 19 when I was introduced to D&D, and I was all about the boobs at 19, so. I was introduced at 10 or 11, and I was, well, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And you still are. (laughs) I still am all about it. Anyway. Any more emails? <laughs> uh, no, I, I think I think that's it. <laughs> I hope that answered your questions, JV. Perhaps more than you wanted. More than you wanted. <laughs> we made good progress. I think we're up to the middle of July now, and emails catch up. Hooray! <laughs> and so, uh, if you want to send more emails, where would you send them to? Jim? Oh, you can send those emails to saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can call in a voicemail. At 940-536-3763. Three sod. And the episode winds down once again. We're out of the hot tub and heading down the dusty road. 
And how are we heading down the dusty road, Liz? I am heading down the dusty road in my non-effeminate-looking steel breastplate. (laughs) (laughs) And... Thinking, thinking to myself, thank goodness I did not buy those high-heeled boots because, man, those give you blisters after walking around for a couple of miles. Yeah, not made for walking down roads. These boots were not made for walking. <laughs> Jim? Uh, I have willed my body to Barsoom where nobody wears shirts, not the men or the women, and my first feminist objection to that was met with a rapier to the chest. <laughs> <laughs> At least they didn't get get the radium gun out. And speaking of which, I am running down the road because I pulled a Barsoomian rabbit out of a hat. <laughs> and I'm regretting it. And that's it for us. We'll see you guys episode 97. See ya. Bye-bye. Free arc. And we're out. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saber Die theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.bandcamp.com. Emails read tonight's episode were fictitious, and any resemblance to emails, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. Chainmail bikinis were supplied courtesy of Marvel Comics and Frank Thorne. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. Right at your baby, but here's my number. So call me maybe. Hey, I just met.